Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2018. Episode 237, The Transitive Power of Myth, presented by Kenneth Height. All right, uh, this is uh, the annual installment of Ken Talks Out Loud About Stuff, or Ken Rambles About Stuff. Uh, this is the transitive property of myth, was the name I came up with it when Darren was nagging me. Uh, and the notion is that, uh, sort of take a, a look at mythology, at myth, at its role uh, in game worlds, and then ideally uh, try and see if we can reflect that as a role in game design, right? So, uh, as always, we start with Earth. Uh, the role of myth in the world, you'll be glad to know, has uh, just as weird and mysterious as it was when Euhemerus and Plato argued about it in the 5th century BC. Um, back in the day, Euhemerus said that myths were just a bunch of stories, and Plato said they were just a bunch of lies. And that seems to still be where we are right now, modulo um, uh, one or two shifts of the anthropological winds. Um, the uh, uh, most uh, dominant theory of myth that began in some senses with Plutarch in the first century BC thereabouts, and certainly um, uh, the first century AD rather, uh, or thereabouts, and then reappeared with uh, Tyler and J.G. Fraser, and then with Malinowski. Uh, so it apparently is a pretty long-standing thesis: is that myth exists to explain ritual, that human beings conduct rituals either because that's how you remember when to plant your millet, or that's how you um, uh, remember when the rainy season is, or that's how you kill the time in an agricultural society when there is literally nothing else to do and you don't want to go stir crazy and cause a bunch of mass murders is to have a ritual. And those rituals exist to bond the society together and convince them that there are better things to do than go crazy and murder each other and maybe it'd be a nice idea to plant some millet. And eventually someone, some bright spark says, why are we doing this? And then you have to say, because Demeter said so. And then you have to explain who Demeter is and why we have to listen to her say so. And before you know it, Greek mythology has emerged, or whoever's mythology. And uh, Malinowski says, uh, for example, that uh, myth exists to explain social structures, which exist to carry out rituals. And that uh, the reason you have a myth is because otherwise the church couldn't collect money from you. Um, uh, that Fraser said that we have myth in order to explain um, uh, crops and how we plant crops, which sort of ties into the, um, uh, the notion that myths exist to explain natural phenomena. Um, so why is there thunder? Because Thor is mad 
Uh, why is there disease? It's because Pandora can't keep a box shut to save her life. Um, those, uh, the, those sort of uh, natural explanations, what they call ideological myths, are uh, sort of the kissing cousin of the theory that myth exists to explain ritual. And that at some point, way back in time, there was a ritual about a disease, that you would do a ritual when someone had a disease, you would mystically close a box uh, on the disease, and then people would say, why did we do that? And it's because of Pandora and her box, and then who's that? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thesis, is that myth exists to explain society or to explain human action. The other half of that equation is that myth comes from inside us, right? It's not something that is imposed from without or created from without. It is something that is created from within. And that is, uh, broadly speaking, either your Jungian theory that there is some uh, land of archetypes, some mystical presence that presses on us all, uh, and it, it expresses itself like Plato through Plato, not Plato through a grating, and you have uh, these archetypical shapes that emerge. And in uh, New Guinea, uh, you get a man up and Kilabab, and in uh, Israel, you get Jehovah and Jesus, and in uh, Greece, you get Zeus and Hercules. But it's all the same frickin' story. It's the son of God who does heroic things and then dies, uh, usually in a, a sort of an embarrassing uh, or other ritual context. And these are just Jungian archetypes that exist and push up and, and create these uh, sets of beliefs. This is what uh, noted anti-Semite and sloppy researcher Joseph Campbell vomited forth to the general destruction of screenwriting everywhere. Uh, but that also appears, for example, in what they used to call in medieval times the Prisca Theologica, which is that mythology was just misunderstood uh, notions of God and uh, the prophecies of Jesus. And that if you really looked at Hercules, you said, oh, he's just prefiguring Jesus. That these holy men in ancient Greece, they didn't know about Jesus, they didn't know about God, they hadn't heard yet. So they were just sort of making the best understanding they could of what was the true myth of, of God and Jesus, not the crazy lying myths, but you know, you have to forgive them because they were pagans and didn't know it better. And it's also what lies beneath Levi-Strauss, uh, who is basically arguing that myth exists as a, what do I want to say, as a cousin, as a cognate, as a substrate, as an exudation of language. And that as we tell each other stories, we are telling each other stories not just in our words, but in our actions, in our social uh, uh, arrangements, that everything we do is a linguistic approach. That our entire society is based on language because it's what literally separates us from the animals. All human beings have in common a language. Not the same language, but a language. And all languages have structure because that structure comes out of the human mind. And therefore that common structure is expressed in myth. And if you can look at enough myths all of which exist in these sort of weird little skewed parts, you can build the grammar of mythology. And this would seem to be where we are going with a exciting topic like the transitive nature of myth with the sad problem that Levi-Strauss is incoherent. And that even Levi-Strauss doesn't believe Levi-Strauss when it's not convenient. And that certainly everything that we know about how oral tradition is passed on indicates that he was wrong about the notion that uh, all myths are complete, for example. And that uh, if you have one story in Brazil about a hero who goes up the side of a cliff and meets a, a magic jaguar, 
and you have another story in another part of Brazil about a hero goes up a cliff and meets a magic vulture, but the vulture and the jaguar are actually the same thing, and they represent cooking food. And everyone is like, what? And that is that, what? That sort of is uh, Levi Strauss's actual contribution, which is to demonstrate very empirically that uh, so-called savage mind, that, that he wrote a very great book called uh, La Pensée Sauvage, The Savage Mind, uh, that the savage mind is no different from our mind, it just has less stuff to think about, so it thinks just as, uh, scientifically is the wrong word, but in just as much rigor about the natural world, about uh, the spirit world, as we think about you know, electrons or whatever. And that they are not a more primitive way of thinking, they just have fewer things in their world to think about, so they obsessively classify the natural world based not only on some Linnaean taxonomy, but also on is it good or bad ritually? Which gods does it make happy or unhappy? As well as if you eat it, do you get high or do you get dead? And so all of those sorts of classifications are become then to uh, Levi-Strauss one sort of building block of myth and that the stories of the, of the various gods and monsters become parts of this same expression of the world, that they look at the invisible world in the same rigor that they look at the natural world, because indeed there is no difference. Now, that turns out to be right, um, as far as we can tell. Everyone who anthropologically goes off and uh, talks to um, uh, people, uh, non-literate societies or oral societies, uh, whether they be Trebriand Islanders or Inuit or uh, Brazilian tribesmen, comes away with the understanding that there is a lot more there there than you would get in just even a, a, a book about it, much less you know a bunch of books about it, or m much less a little um, uh, Wikipedia article about it. So the, the notion that human processing power unleashed on the mytholo mythological universe can be as detailed and as complete as you want it, regardless of whether or not we have actual written records of that, that's a valuable insight and good for you, Levi Strauss. But being Levi Strauss, he ruins it. Um, so that's where we are basically now, and most people have agreed either to stop arguing about it or that they've sort of assumed that everyone always agreed with either Levi Strauss or Malinowski, and then they just shut up. Uh, the, the, the notion that there is some sort of or theory of myth may actually be dead because we have these two competing theories that, like I say, go back, you know, by now 2,000 years, and no one has ever broken the other one, and in fact, since they're both wrong, we maybe begin to say there cannot be an overarching theory of myth. So we are left with sort of formal definition, which is also, you'll be glad to know, impossible. Um, you can't draw a bright line and say on this side of the line is myth, and this side of the line is not myth. Uh, there is certainly both categories exist, but what belongs on one side or the other is it, you, you can't draw that line. For example, uh, the story of Oedipus. You ask 100 people, including 100 classics professors, uh, is Oedipus myth or not myth? And everyone say, myth. He's Oedipus. It's in Greek mythology. You pull down Bullfinch's mythology, Oedipus is right there. Um, uh, he goes to an oracle of Apollo. Uh, they promise that he's going to kill his father and marry his mother. And he's like, no, I'm not. And he goes off and he fights a sphinx and it answers its riddle and it throws itself into the crevasse and so the people of Thebes are super happy that he's there. He's there, rescued them so they make him their king so he marries the hot queen uh, because their king mysteriously died in a car accident on his way to Thebes and oh my god, 
Then he tears his eyes out, goes up onto a mountain, brings plague to Thebes, etc., etc., etc. And everyone's like, well, yeah, look, look, it's all myth, except you don't need gods for that story. That's just a creepy, horrible story. <laughs> uh, there's no, uh, the Oedipus isn't the son of a god, he's not related to a god, he's not friends with a god, he just ignores Apollo, and you can ignore Apollo whether Apollo's there or not. I mean, it's easier even if he's not. So, Oedipus is clearly a myth, and that it, for, it does a lot of the things that myth does. It explains uh, the mysteries of the universe to us. It gives us a moral model to follow. It um, uh, expresses the origin of something. It contains a creepy monster. All of these are characteristics of myth, but it is not myth, right? Uh, similarly, the Trojan War. Historical event, almost certainly, there was a raid on Troy that probably burned down Troy to circa 1200 BC. Almost certainly, Achaeans did it. Were they Agamemnon? Maybe. Were they Odysseus? Maybe. Did Ares go down onto the battlefield and stab somebody? Probably not. But in the Iliad, Ares is not a... He, He's not a major character, but he's like, you know, Sean Connery in the cameo. You're paying attention when he shows up. So the Iliad is both a story of myth and a story of history. And uh, Malinowski, among others, because he desperately is trying to rescue his categories, says, no, if you go to the Shrebrian Islanders, they have uh, two categories of story. They have the true story and the story. And true stories are stories about uh, the gods and the sacred realm and stories are just stories. And you say to Malinowski, in those stories, people are like turning into bats and running around and breathing water and having all kinds of cool magic adventures. He's like, those are just folk tales. It's not myth. And he's got a point, right? Folk tales are different from myth. They don't have named heroes. They have, there was a guy who had three brothers where their named heroes are not really names, like Cinderella and Jack. Those aren't names. Those are like placeholders. That's when you're at a one-shot, and you're like, what's the name of your character? Uh, Baldar. I mean, they, they don't mean anything. Folk tales are resolved by human ingenuity, even if it's human ingenuity to use magic. That's what resolves them. And so when you look at Odysseus, you're saying, this is a folktale hero who has clevered his way into a myth. But um, uh, the, 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 the mythic heroes resolve their actions by obeying or disobeying the gods. They don't resolve their actions by, you know, out-clevering somebody, but as uh, many classes point out, there are elements of folktale that sort of bubble their way up into myth, and someone says, that's a cool story about that guy who used a mirror to kill a basilisk. I wonder if I could make it about Perseus. And I'll bet, and sure enough, you can. And so now the mirror is a magic mirror that was given to him by a god, and he also has flying shoes that were given to him by a different god, and now it's part of myth because it's Perseus, but the original story of Perseus fighting the monster that turns you to stone, that's almost certainly just a little fun folktale that gets attached to him. And this, uh, what they call a paratastic myth, where you have a really great story and you have a really great hero, and it's like, well, it, more people will know this story if I put it in, you know, uh, D20, I mean, attach it to Perseus. So that... Uh, that phenomenon happens not just in ancient Greece, it happens in, you know, modern-day Brazilian uh, tribes, it happens in uh, Inuit culture, you can go, every single oral culture will do that, because good stories want to attach themselves, or storytellers want to attach good stories, depending on which direction you want to play that, to stories that already have heat, you know, um, to them, have, more will be given, um, the Episcopalian myth. Um, 
So that phenomenon basically kicks the uh, wall between folk tales and myth back down because you can go back and forth between them. So you can say certainly there are things that have the characteristics of folk tales, there are things that have the characteristics of myth, but you cannot say this is myth, this is folk tale. Similarly, you can't say this is myth, this is history about, say, Jesus, or about, say, Davy Crockett, or about, say, Odysseus. All of them historical figures, all of them with great stories told about them, some of them true, some of them a matter for your individual belief, some of them probably just made the hell up because they were good stories. That's the case in all three of those guys. So the lines that we draw, uh, I should probably drop in here because Mircea Eliade famously says, myth is the thing that happens before time or before history. And again, that sounds great until you remember, oh right, Gilgamesh starts out with a fucking long lineage. There is a thing that puts Gilgamesh right into history before we then go off and have a crazy ass myth. Uh, similarly to the Bible. You may remember all the damn begats. Uh, that's putting the Bible into history. That's the Bible saying to Mircea Eliot, you're a Nazi, I'm not going to listen to you. Um, he's not a Nazi. He's Iron Guard. Second-rate Nazis at best. Um, so the, uh, so, so the, the, the lines there are, are very snaky and very hard to draw. Now, the good news is that as game designers, we don't have to care because we are setting our games either in Earth, where those lines are already snaky and hard to draw, and no one can blame us, or we're setting them in a fantasy world, and in those cases, making them snaky and hard to draw actually makes it better, because it causes uncertainty, which means that we don't have definition, and without definition, you don't have, you, you have the possibility for mystery, which is to say you have the possibility for myth. I should point out, by the way, that that uh, Trebriand Island distinction between true and lie history, also in Hesiod, Hesiod says, I'm going to tell you two kinds of stories. I'm going to tell you mythos, which means story, and that means a true story about the gods, maybe. And I'm going to tell you logos, which just means words, which is also legain, which is where the word legend comes from. So there you go. Uh, that division, you know, people have been doing that for even longer than they've been arguing about myth. When Hesiod is like finding all the myths in Greece and trying to make a coherent mythos out of them when he's being the Lynn Carter of ancient Greece and pulling the mythos together. Um, so that's where we are in terms of understanding myth and in terms of understanding where it comes from and what's like in the real world. And so if you're saying, Ken, what it's like in the real world is a giant mystical tangle and you didn't help me at all, well, welcome to myth. Um, so what is it doing in our games, right? Uh, I think we can sort of pull back from the why and the where, and circle back around to the what. So myth of, is going to take place generally outside the band, if you think of it, of human experience. Here's human experience right here in the middle. And then you go down, you've got monsters and demons. And you go farther down, you've got um, uh, the dead and, uh, and uh, the ruler of the dead, maybe the devil. So, you know, really powerful shit. You go up, you got different monsters. There's sort of the superhuman monsters and the subhuman monsters. And you've got demigods and heroes, people with divine blood or divine nature that are not necessarily worthy of worship. Then maybe you have angels if you're fancy. If you're the Gnostics, you then do about 25,000 more of these with the Chinese. But eventually you get to gods. 
So you have your gods, you have your under-gods, evil gods, anti-gods, whatever you want to call them. Um, uh, somewhere in there you have the dead. In some cultures, the dead get to go up here with the heroes and not down there with the, with the ruler of, of, of the underworld. Some cultures split them up. You're nice, you get to go to the good part of the, you know, the good neighborhood. You're bad, you don't get to go to the good neighborhood. But either way, they're outside that band. And so we're dealing with stories that are outside that band. And in most role-playing games, we're dealing with people who are outside that band. Uh, even in Call of Cthulhu, where you're dealing with normal hobos and professors of parapsychology, they keep stumbling into the land of monsters and the dead and under monsters and under gods. Uh, in <laughs> better, in happier worlds, you have the chance to sort of borrow some of that power or exist in some of that power. And you could maybe look at superhero games as saying, oh, look, we're being our modern uh, semi-divine heroes. We're being our Odysseuses and our Perseuses and our uh, Gloose Caps and our Jesuses. Maybe not our Jesuses. But we're existing in that half realm, um, uh, even as player characters. But we're definitely calling on those people to help us or meeting them in the road and hopefully not hitting them with our chariot. And then up here are the divine beings that we can't hope to become. And I'm sure there are games where you actually get to rise to godhood, but most of them you don't. And in a game about mythology, you probably don't. Now, the downside to me opining on how to present myth in a game is that Greg Stafford already did it in RuneQuest, and then Robin Laws redid it via Greg's uh, vision in Hero Quest and Hero Wars. And Greg's vision is that the role of the hero is to journey into the land of the gods, perform great feats, and bring back a benefit to the people. And that's informed by a lot of uh, a discussion of myth. Um, uh, there's a guy named, I want to say Folk, but I, I could be wrong. I could have <laughs> missed some sleep. Um, who basically said that was, the, that was the reason the heroes exist, was to do that shit. Um, and so Greg presents the, the notion of the, of, the, of the hero quest as the, as the activity that you, the characters, do. And that you gain knowledge of this sacred world, you gain uh, a wisdom by means of having runes revealed to you, runes being the uh, mythos, the true words, not the logos, the lying words, uh, revealed to you by the gods. And that's actually a pretty robust model. I mean, it has given great satisfaction in RuneQuest, it works really well in Hero Wars and Hero Quest. And so if all you want to do is model a relatively conventional view uh, uh, via anthropologists of what myth does, Greg Stafford has done it as well as we're going to get. What we maybe want to look at, though, is rather than uh, Stormball and the Red Moon we might want to say, what if we want to do Zeus and Demeter? Can we build out those runes, those uh, relationships uh, with people, with heroes, in a useful way in the game that is not just, well, I'm the cleric of Zeus, so I throw lightning bolts instead of fire. Again, you should do that at the minimum because uh, worship of a god should feel like worship of a god. It's an aesthetic choice. Um, but can we do more than that? And that's where we can get back around to ritual. And instead of having myth explaining ritual, we have ritual justifying mythic power. 
And so in game you have to exercise a ritual action. Now in uh, you know in, in D and D you have to have the little components and do the little uh, somatic thing if you're a wizard. But as a cleric you have to pray and you know meditate for a bit. But that's not a ritual. In in proper ritual we have to do something annoying or hard or expensive. You have to sacrifice an animal. You have to avoid eating meat uh, that's been cooked in iron. You have to live a a good life, you have to be ascetic or celibate or wear a saffron robe or something to differentiate yourself so that you have that special access, that you've got the little badge on the lanyard that lets you, you know, boop up to the realm and, and at least access this mythical power. So the rituals that you perform should have some impact on your life as a character if they're going to feel mythical, if they're going to have mythical weight. Because if all it is is, you know, uh, I rested overnight, I reloaded my spell. You know, it's, it's practical, but it's not mythical. You can also look at uh, a different, the, the, sort of the Cthulhu underside of going and getting this knowledge and it changing the world, but not for the better. And it, you can imagine a situation where you have uh, something all, all along the lines of um, uh, <clears throat> the underground, Ray Winninger's underground rules for uh, social stability, and instead of making them better by your actions, you make them worse by fighting monsters because you are bringing this monstrousness up into the world, whether you mean to or not. Uh, Delta Green sort of does that in a very secular way with the bonds, that as you meet these horrible monsters, you're abrading your relationships with human beings. But you could do something uh, to abrade society's relationship with itself. Um, you you know you rate, you lower the reaction time of the of the police. You uh, lower the the the, the chances um, uh, to, uh, uh, to 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 get uh, uh, food or um, uh, healing if you're in the the town after you've gone into the evil place instead of the good place. So you're acting as this carrier of mythic energy, and then how do you purify yourself? Oh, good. There's a ritual for that. And then that becomes a quest, but it is a quest with meaning as opposed to just, oh, we have to get part four of the rod, blah, blah, blah. We have to do this because we see this mythical act having an effect in the world. We're Oedipus. We've brought plague to Thebes by our actions. Maybe don't tear your eyes out and go live on a mountain. That seems very final for a player character. But maybe you have to figure out something you have to do that's almost as inconvenient and annoying but it becomes part of the story. It becomes part of your character and why you are able to uh, sort of uh, take the world's suffering or your town's suffering onto yourself, just as Heracles does, just as Jesus does, just as uh, uh, Kilobob does. Once more, you are then engaging in that um, uh, beautiful notion of the, of the grammar of myth just telling itself through you, that you become the words in that story, the, the logos in that mythos. And that's another, uh, that's, a, that's a higher concept. It's harder to do as a rules structure, as a, as a designer, unless you're doing a story game, in which case that can be literally the whole point of the, of the game. And then finally, I want to really briefly touch on, let's say you've got one set of myth or one set of mythic behavior, and you want to translate it into another. So you've got... Um, uh, the Cthulhu mythos and you want to say well I want this to just take place in ancient Rome and I want to use Roman gods instead of the mythos gods and I want this to be a game about you know um, why the Roman gods are horrible and they all needed to die 
uh, is there a way to translate them beyond just saying, well, Demeter's for fertility, Shubnigarith is fertility, eh, call it a day, same thing. Um, is there a way to look at those, uh, of those gods, those roles, and sort of look at them as, uh, as Lego blocks that you just pull out and plug in where you want to? And domains are not a bad place to start, but you might also look not just at are they gods of fertility, but what are they doing in the society? What ritual purpose are they performing? And say, is there something that equates to that purpose? So if uh, Mars exists to bless the legions and send them out to war, uh, is there a entity that in your, in your new mythology, in your Cthulhu mythology, let's say, that exists to... Um, uh, uh, to, to batten itself on conflict. And you go, well, that sounds like Nerlathotep to me. He would batten on conflict. He's a bad guy. And you put him down there. Apollo, famously, of course, inspires the prophets, sends them mystical dreams. Well, we all know who sends you mystical dreams. That's Cthulhu. Now, if Cthulhu and Apollo don't have any domains in common. Cthulhu is, the, uh, is in the ocean, and he's a squid, and all kinds of other things. Apollo is the sun, and he has uh, flaming arrows and he's about knowledge and language, but you can take things that we know about Apollo and make them true of Cthulhu, and suddenly they're creepy. It's like, well, if Apollo gives you music and language, what if that came from Cthulhu? What does that say about our music and language in our, in our world? Well, that's terrible. That's awful. That, this must be why we're burning all these books. Um, they, they come from Cthulhu, not from Apollo at all. And uh, if you think of um, uh, where are our commonalities between you know, Apollo the, the sun and Cthulhu the sunken squid god, maybe the sun, when it rises, it's powerful, and when it sinks, it's dead. Look at that. We found something. We found ourselves a commonality. And so you can look at those patterns in the story, that you know, Levi-Straussian grammar of the myth. Uh, which is, of course, completely illegitimate in the real world. Do not pretend that this is real. But in your game context, it can feel real. Uh, you can buy it for the purpose of the game, just as you can buy that your character is a magician or your character is actually capable of killing something with a stick or whatever it happens to be. So these sorts of assumptions that you make about the world and, 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 uh, and ways to look at the mythical grammar uh, can give you flexibility when you're presenting a world either in a game that you're running for people or in a game that you're writing to be sold to people. And even asking the questions and thinking about them means that your world is going to have more uh, depth and more possibility to it because it will be closer to the world that we live in that actually does have all that depth and possibility. So that's my sort of direction that I have, that's as far as I've gotten with this. And traditionally, um, well, traditionally I've gotten a little farther usually by this point, but traditionally this is the point at which I see if you guys have any thoughts or questions or ideas uh, towards that end. So, yeah. Well, I actually, I was struck by your comparison with Cthulhu and Apollo, because uh, Apollo, anyone who comes in contact with Apollo, like any mortal, especially mortal women, uh, tend to go insane and just flee from his very presence. That's where we get most of the transformation myths. Uh, and that's where Ovid did most of his best work, was you know, you know, people turning to moral trees to get away from Apollo. Same thing with Cthulhu. If you, if you suddenly witness Cthulhu, you go mad from, you, you, are, you are transformed. So it, I'm sorry, just 
Right. Um, uh, just in case the recording didn't pick that up, which it probably didn't, um, the notion here is that uh, both the Greek gods and the uh, Cthulhu mythos gods have the happy coincidental feature of driving you mad if you behold them in their glory. Uh, Zeus famously burned Semele alive by revealing himself in his glory to her. And there are many other gods, Apollo not accepted, who have had a similar deleterious effect even on semi-divine creatures like nymphs. So, uh, yeah, the notion that uh, there is uh, more underneath that shiny marble exterior is one to uh, pay attention to. And I would recommend a book by, I think his name is E.R. Dodds, uh, The Greeks and the Irrational, which is a great book on sort of the other half of Greek mythology that uh, we get papered over and ignore because the Greeks who wrote it all down wanted to be thought of as very rational and very in control, and that was their great virtue. Any other questions, thoughts? Back sass. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that. Mm, it's a little bit of a trend in myths, but I know that Cthulhu is done over and over and over again. Yeah. I was wondering why not other mythos are being used in the game or board games. So, so, uh, so is, is, is the question, what trends do we think we can get on, or is why is Cthulhu? Because those yes, are two yeah, kind of different what questions. What trends do you think are going to happen in myth besides Cthulhu? I mean, it, our modern myths, in the sense of what's going, what's what's grabby. Um, well, first of all, you can. I mean, the old myths are grabby. Um, you, there's a children's uh, book series called Percy Jackson that was the damn Greek myths over again. Sold a billion, billion copies, and there's movies and the whole nine yards. So don't don't count out Zeus and Co. Uh, it, superheroes, obviously, have been never been bigger. Uh, They've, uh, you don't have to be uh, Grant Morrison to have noticed the parallels between gods and superheroes, although it helps if you are. Um, they play a similarly mythic role. Uh, you can also look at uh, the sort of, um, uh, Neil Gaiman doesn't do it super well, but in American Gods he takes uh, notions of modernity and tries to mythologize them. So the myth of computers and the myth of electricity and the myth of uh, the American Dream and whatever else that are personified. And uh, I would uh, draw your attention to a game like Nobilis, which sort of assumes that all these things have already been reified into gods, and you're catching up with them in their day-to-day uh, -day life of undoing creation or redoing creation. It, it's a terrific game. It, it, it uh, warrants the title of genius uh, and well worth checking out. But as far as you know, what's going to happen you know, tomorrow or the next day, if I knew that, I'd be selling it to Hollywood. Um, my guess is that, uh, you know, we don't get very many epical geniuses. Uh, so far, our rate is less than one a century. So I don't see someone coming along and replacing Cthulhu anytime soon. Yeah? Uh, this is the why Cthulhu question, which is kind of a different panel, but I'll answer it. Uh, because Cthulhu is a myth for the 20th century, and so far for the 21st century, in that he is a myth to explain, uh, the, you know, the, if the notion is that myths exist to explain mysteries, uh, Cthulhu explains the mystery of what happens. Why does it happen? Uh, you die for no reason. That's the explanation. Um, and Cthulhu's uh, apocalypse, Cthulhu's attentions to you are impersonal. They're not personal. It's not like the old days when Ares would stab you in the face. This is just, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to destroy civilization and your planet and also your um, uh, laws of physics. 
uh, but I'm not going to do it to be mean. I'm going to do it because I woke up. Um, right. The notion that the, the, the 20th century notion of human insignificance in the face of everything. That right. And, and the fact that our dooms are not going to be caused by Aries stabbing us in the face. They're going to be caused by climate change or gamma ray bursters or uh, a terrible plague that sweeps out and, and massacres us all or um, uh, terrorism or uh, whatever. It's not going to be you know, a cackling madman. It's not going to be Hitler or Stalin. It's just going to be fuckingness that takes out um, uh, the human race. And Cthulhu is the myth of that. Cthulhu explains that to us. And, uh, and that's why. Uh, that, that's why Cthulhu. Um, you can also argue that Lovecraft came along at the exact at the steam engine time for creating um, uh, modern myth, myth themes, which are the building blocks of myth, because of course um, uh, in that same decade you get the, uh, the private eye invented by Dashiell Hammett and the cowboy uh, hero invented by Owen Wister. Uh, those are all within about 20 years of each other. So yeah, that was a good time to be in charge of creating all popular culture, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, Levi-Strauss would agree that uh, the guy who tells the myth is no expert on the myth. Um, that uh, you have to be a French anthropologist to be an expert on myth. Um, and, and, uh, the, and that's how he gets away, away with all the contradictions that are in actual myths, is he says, well, they don't understand the real thing. I have to tell them what it means. Um, but uh, David Koresh, you could say, is uh, either acting out, he's sort of the, the um, uh, in... Um, Anne Morrill Lindbergh's famous phrase, the scum on the wave of the future. He's the thing that floats on the surface of the sea of the unconscious, right? The, the sea of the unconscious is pushing up this, uh, this sex messiah, if you will, going maybe back to Orpheus or going back to, to any number of, of, of uh, possible imageries. And um, he's just bobbing up on that wave, right? Uh, you could also say that David Koresh is a, 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 myth, a mytho-manipulator, that he sees this architecture of the human mind and is operating on it. And he knows people want to uh, believe in uh, this, uh, the, this human savior that will walk among them, so I will be that. And people will be willing to sacrifice to that human savior, so I'm going to make the ritual all about David Koresh getting laid instead of planting a bunch of millet. Um, and so he's sort of maybe uh, not so much a, a, a snake oil salesman, although there's that, but he's a mimetic artist or a mythic grammar, grammar, grammary, grammatician, grammaretrician? Sure. Yeah. Um, grammary, of course, is uh, medieval English for magic, and it comes from grammar. It means you are smart enough to understand how things operate. Um, and that's why you're a magician instead of um, uh, a peasant. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, the notion of, of cults in general is that even back in the old, old ancient Greece, when you had a mystery cult, the reason they had to be a cult or a mystery is because they didn't have the same rituals as everyone. They had a secret better ritual. And their secret better ritual was generally, not always, generally focused on one aspect of the, in, of this, of, of the invisible world, of the super world. So if you're in the cult of Eleusis, uh, you are focused on Demeter. 
And Zeus and Poseidon can go hang, because you've figured out the cheat code for Demeter. And if you've got the cheat code for Demeter, you don't need to give a crap what Apollo thinks, because you're already in good. You've got the you know, e-ticket ride. Um, the, uh, the, the cult of Samothrace famously had the Megaloi Theoi, the great gods, who they just didn't bother to tell you who they were. You just had to guess. And maybe the internal um, Mistai knew who the Megaloi Theoi were, and maybe they don't. Maybe at one point they did, and they forgot, and then they just said, if we admit we forgot, no one's going to bring us giant piles of gold, so we're just going to keep this going. There is an actual record in Livy, the Roman historian, first century BC, of uh, Roman cults that worshipped gods that they'd forgotten the names of. They still did the ritual actions, but they'd forgotten who they were to. And they were just, well, I hope that we're right. <laughs> uh, and there were two other gods of the original 12, the original Flamenes, uh, which is the priesthoods of those gods, or the culthoods of those gods. And they did things for gods that they knew the name of, but they didn't remember anything else. So the god um, uh, Fluvia, not the god of rivers, the god of something, just make sure she's not mad. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Very, the very, very pragmatic, uh, uh, taboo-laden, genocidal monsters the Romans were. Um, so the yeah, so the notion of cults as either people who feel like they've got a cheat code or they've got a special access portal, or they've got you know they've min-maxed their character sheet so badly that you know they really can only do one thing, but they can do it super well. Uh, the people who, uh, they, they don't need to know the whole grammar, and so they've just mastered this thin strip of it. I think that all of those things could apply, and in your, in your game world, you might want to have your cults be one type of that, one model of that, or there might be, as there were in ancient Greece, a zillion different cults, uh, some of them existing mostly to make the island of Samothrace super rich, Others of them to uh, uh, throw uh, giant um, uh, plays and performances for the city of Athens, which is how theater started. It was the cult of Dionysus that in, in, enacted their rituals in open air on the hillside, and people would come and try and figure out what it meant. And that was that was the, that's how theater started. So if you are that theater people are mystic weirdos. Yep. Anyone else? Yeah. Right. Or even like a vampire originally being like a uh, really like, you know, creepy monster to like, you know, really beautiful person. Mm -hmm. Where do you think like the, the lion kind of draws like where the wheel kind of gets reinvented for the creature? I mean, this is one of the things that, uh, speaking of people who have no business talking about myth but are super fun, uh, Robert Graves wrote a book called The Greek Myths, which you can still see sold in the nonfiction sections of better bookstores everywhere. And Robert Graves, God bless him, went through not all of them, but a lot of the sources for the various Greek myths. And so he will tell you the story of Oedipus, and then he'll say, or it happened this way, or maybe it happened this way, and in Hyginus it happens this way. And so far so good, right? Because the Greek myths do contradict themselves, uh, uh, and that's one of the things Dodds tells you about. You can read that in um, F.M. Cornford and, um, oh, uh, there was a, a female anthropologist who was hugely influential 
uh, right around that same time as Cornford, uh, Jane Harrison, uh, wrote books that said, hey, Greek myth, pat, pattern of patchy discontinuity, nothing going on here, just lots of layered stories. And then they tried to say, so the older ones must be the real ones, which is, but you know, their hearts were in the right place. And Jane Harrison is still a great read today. But Graves will do all of that, and then in the footnotes he will say, well, this is because the peahen represents the sacred king. And you're like, you're bananas, Robert Graves. But that notion where we have our siren that begins as a, as a bird becomes a mermaid and then becomes sort of a, a lady vampire is exactly that sort of pattern. That, you know, in one case, Poseidon is the god of horses, and in another case, he's the god of earthquakes, and in another case, he's the god of the ocean. And when Hesiod has to write it down, he's like, He's the god of horses because they rumble like earthquakes or, say, the ocean. It's like, you just made that up, has he? We know. Um, and, and that shift in the myth can be because the myth is answering slightly different questions or is answering them in a slightly different language. And the question is, are our sirens all the same siren, the way that Levi-Strauss would say that our jaguar and our vulture are the same spirit of cooking food? Or are they different beings that slot into... A, uh, a needed niche and so when we needed the niche for them to be birds uh, that's when you have sirens and also harpies and also the Stymphalian birds and suddenly the Greeks are all crazy about birds for a while and then once you have a, a, a more um, uh, a, a more maritime culture in Italy instead of uh, mainland Greece and they're sailing around larger stretches of the Mediterranean birds are not such a big problem actually birds are kind of nice because they mean you're close to shore but now we've got the water, the mermaid is our problem. She's going to drown us. And then once you've got compasses and it's less relevant that there are mermaids out there, that's when they just become ladies who want to drown you for no reason and, or because you've been a naughty boy. Uh, and so those sirens then answer the, the question of, when I get to port in my ship, should I go away with the first girl I meet or maybe get a recommendation from someone? And so they're answering those same ideological questions of we're all going to die at, at sea, but they're answering them in different vocabulary. And, and that, again, is a, a sort of, you know, that's the ideological explanation, which, again, is possibly bananas, uh, because we don't know. Uh, we do know that the stories change, which is the fun part of it for me. And making those stories change can either be uh, M. Jane Harrison-style evidence that oh, originally this is about a bird monster that, you know, killed a guy on a boat. Or it can be, which would also be Euhemerus' answer, by the way, or it can be that this uh, 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 shadowy ghost thing that hates sailors just keeps taking these different forms like a tulpa based on what it is that you fear. And that's, in a game, that can be two entirely separate but entirely fun answers. And if you are playing uh, or designing a game in which uh, myth themes and archetypes can alter their shape that can give you a lot I think of, of pregnant play and, and, and rule possibilities whether you're playing the archetypes or whether you're playing bold uh, French anthropologists who go to slay them uh, either one could, could be a fun possibility yeah. uh, Which myth structures that are not as popular have you found most impressive? When you say myth structures uh, what are you what are like you? Other, uh, Um, the, the, so the question is, uh, uh, you, um, utile myth structures, and I 
think that you, by structure you mean tradition? Sure. You, do you mean, yeah. do you, because the structure, as, as Levi Strauss is shouting from my phone right now, is you know, the, 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 the grammar of the story. It's how it progresses. It's like this guy does this thing and then there's this other thing and we've learned an important lesson about um, uh, uh, menstruation. And that's the, the thing for Levi Strauss. Um, the, the, the thing I think that you're asking is uh, stories from a particular tradition yeah. or ways that the tradition uh, uh, can alter. And I mean, there's there's a lot of them. I mean, one of the classics. I mean, and this goes in gaming culture. It goes back to freaking Dream Park by Larry Niven at Al. Is the cargo cult, which is another great modern myth. Uh, the notion that um, uh, if you're bopping along in the South Pacific, living your life, living large, eating breadfruit, having a good time, and then suddenly a giant iron boat shows up, and Guys get off the boat and they have spam and axes and lighters and radios and all kinds of crazy stuff and they're very busy and there's explosions happen and maybe a bunch of you die or maybe a bunch of you get you know, offered uh, spam and lighters and axes to get on a boat and go to a different island that you've never been to but you've heard about and then you come back to your island and they're like, what was it like? It's like, it's amazing! Everything is made of this white material and it's tall and it smells terrible and there's no breadfruit but also you get to touch electricity, oh my god! And you literally, experientially, it's like you were taken to a magical realm by crazy demon people. And the cargo cults, in some cases, were like, uh, we don't want that crazy demon people going on, and they created literal civil wars in their societies between the people who were like, yeah, crazy demon people, and the other nope. In other cases, they were like, well, we have to explain this. We have to create a, a story that explains what was going on. And it was like, oh, the god Manup has revealed the existence of our lovely paradise to these white guys. And they sailed over and they bribed Manup with all this cool stuff to let them come and, and mess with us. And if we can get that cool stuff, we can bribe Manup to send them away again. But leave the spam and lighters and, and, and axes because those were awesome. And... In some cases, it would be, we've found our Messiah who will lead us to this wonderful new land or fix the problem uh, that, was, that, that was history has broken because suddenly there are people who are having sex with us that we do not know, which is wrong. Um, uh, and, 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 or they're the guy who are going to bring down the, 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 the supplies of cargo and, and make us super rich and we're never even going to have to pick breadfruit again because we're going to have awesome you know, canned pineapple, or we'll just worship Lyndon Johnson because he's the king of the, of the white people, and if we worship him better than the white people can, then he'll give us the stuff. All of those were responses, and some of them were uh, done by uh, local David Koresh types, yeah. and some of them were done by legitimate religious messianic figures. There's a, a John Frum cult and I think it was New Caledonia, New Hebrides somewhere. Um, and he was a guy who's like, I had had a vision and I was taken up into heaven and I was taken back down and I saw God and God was like, you will not believe what these white people are doing. Um, let me show you the real Bible, not the crazy white people Bible. And then you go and you tell your buddies and then I will, you know, make everything right. Uh, there was another guy named Yali in, I think it was Australia or in New Guinea who had the same sort of experience. But And this is the same sort of thing. This is what humans do when they are faced with these giant cultural traumas um, uh, and, and they sort of try to figure it out and explain it um, uh, and th those traumas also change over history like you were talking about if you look at uh, the ways that the story of um, uh, 
uh, of uh, Inanna and Marduk, or Inanna and uh, the other gods, uh, changed. It changed because different Babylonian cities were in charge, and so it was their titular deity had to become the hero of the new story, because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense if the, the god of Nippur killed Tiamat, because Nippur's a no place. It's like Cleveland. Who would be there? No, we have to worship uh, Marduk, because he's the god of Babylon. That's the awesome city. And so we have to sort of figure out how the story moved. So you have the same sorts of effects uh, based on geopolitical change in you know uh, conventional mythology that you found in the Pacific. But the great thing about the Pacific is you could watch it happen. And anthropologists would go there in the middle of this and write it down. And in many cases, they, the, the, the people they were talking to were just as mystified as the anthropologists. We have no idea what's going on. And so they're in the process of explaining this to themselves and creating this wonderful, magical world. And the fun thing about cargo cults is that it is such a strong piece of grammar or such a wonderful archetype or such a sensible response that H.P. Lovecraft invented it before anyone knew about cargo cults. When in Shadow of Rensmith, what happens? There's these magical beings from another land and they come and they have sex with us and maybe we didn't like that so much, but whatever. And they brought us gold and they brought us fish and they brought us neat stuff. And then they went away. And how do we get them back? Oh, I know. We go and we offer human sacrifices off the reef and then they'll come back and we will raise up Innsmouth and it, it will reign in glory and, and beauty forever. Lovecraft was writing a cargo cult with white guys as the Pacific Islanders. And so that's a rich myth right there. That's a pattern that you can use. And I, like I said, Lovecraft was using it before anyone knew about the cargo cult. The first cargo cults recorded uh, in the South Pacific are about 1890, but it was in German and Lovecraft did not read German. Uh, this is well before World War II, which is when the huge blow-up of it happened. Um, that's a great phenomenon. You see similar sorts of uh, catastrophic phenomena and beliefs happen in, in South Africa, for example. The Josa had a belief after they started meeting Dutchmen that this was obviously fucked. God did not intend Dutchmen to be in the world. And so if they just did everything right, then God would send the Dutchmen away. And uh, in their case, right meant kill all the cattle, uh, which turns out to have been a horrible strategic mistake when Dutchmen are around. Don't do that, kids. Um, but the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, North American uh, nations, uh, uh, Tecumseh of the Shawnee and his brother, half-brother, uh, Tenskotawa, um, had the same sort of apocalyptic vision that if they did it right, God would just flip the world over and the white guys would be buried where they belong and we could get back to not dealing with these assholes. Uh, the same thing happens in uh, uh, 1890, uh, I think it's 1890, maybe it's 1880, in Wyoming, basically, or Colorado, when Wovoka has the same vision and uh, the Great Spirit says, uh, sorry about the white guys, I was you know, off you know, making bagels or something. Um, if you do the ghost dance and everybody does this magical ritual that I've just taught you, I'll, you know, the railroads will basically roll themselves back up, the buffalo will come back up out of the ground, and all the white guys will go away. And then they do this ghost dance ritual, and then Wounded Knee happens, and that ends the ghost dance ritual, because the dance is nice, but, you know, it's not massacre nice. And, uh, but, but that same phenomenon just keeps going over and over and over again, and you can, Im you can imagine or create a world in which that is happening, because uh, the elves have shown up, and the humans are like, what the hell was that? Or the humans have shown up and the elves are like, what the hell was that? Uh, but that, what the hell was that response is one that a lot of myth, I think, is about. And I think if you probably drilled all the way back to the Trojan War somewhere, the, um, uh, 
people who are trying to explain what happened, how did that war happen, who are those guys, um, were like, well, it must have happened because Paris, that asshole, went and raped one of their, uh, one of their queens. It can't just have been because we're on a strategic location with a choke point of grain shipments. That's, that, that's just the you know, superficial explanation that everyone buys. Um, it has to happen that we've, you know, we ticked off uh, Athena. Uh, and and now, we, now this has happened to us. And meanwhile, in, in Greece, they're like, how did this war go so wrong? And they're like, oh, well, it's because uh, Agamemnon killed his daughter. That's why. He ruined it for us. It's his fault, that jerk, bossing us around after killing his daughter. And then that becomes that sort of origin story of this uh, traumatic event, which, of course, is reflected in this unprecedented waves of earthquakes across uh, Bronze Age uh, Mediterranean, which has got its own bunch of crazy stories about it, but we don't know enough about those records to know which of these are this specific earthquake stories and which are just, hey, kids, earthquakes are bad, you know, PSA-type myths, which you don't really need to, you know, an inciting event because earthquakes are bad. Um, anyway, I got uh, signaled that we are close to time, as indeed we are. So, uh, in the two minutes left, um, I'd like to thank you all for coming out. Uh, this was even more rambly than normal, but hopefully the topic was sexier, so it's a wash. Um, thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next year, uh, hopefully uh, with me having slept longer and uh, looked at more than a couple of books on the way. I do recommend G.S. Kirk's myth, its meaning and function in ancient and other cultures. It's from 1970 which means it is immune to at least two bad ideas of myth. Um, and uh, Joseph Campbell doesn't appear in the index, which is always a good sign. Um, anyway, uh, thank you very much, and uh, go forth and do likewise.